The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Church, would you remain standing with me as we read Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a deceased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was clearly the greatest teacher to ever walk the earth. As we have discussed often, We've walked together these last 19 months through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse. We've discovered that Jesus' miraculous works, is healing the sick, calming the sea, casting out demons, even raising the dead, that while these were all driven by love and compassion for those that were around him, he saw those that were sick and sad, lonely, hurting, and scared. Driven by love, he met their tangible, real, physical needs. And yet the purpose behind these miraculous works was to bring them to believe. As they saw the works that Jesus did, he was bringing them to believe in that message which he proclaimed. Because you see, more than food for your bellies, more than legs that work, what man needs is to trust in the person and the message of Jesus Christ. This is why when the crowds had swelled, as they came to find Jesus, looking for more of these miracles, his disciples found him out alone praying with the Father. And he told them there, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for this is why I've come out. This was the true and ultimate purpose behind Jesus' miraculous works. He was revealing himself, that by the working of the Holy Spirit, as man were given eyes to see, to recognize that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. By the working of that same Holy Spirit, as they were given ears to hear, as they could understand this message that he proclaimed, that he was the one that the Father had promised from the very beginning, that right there in the Garden of Eden, God had promised that from woman would come a man that would stomp the head of the serpent. From Abraham would come a descendant through whom the whole world would be blessed. From David would come a son who would reign on the throne forever. He was revealing to men that he was that one. That if they would just repent of their sins, turn and trust in him, that salvation would be theirs. They would be forgiven of their sins and given eternal life, access into the kingdom of God. The only hope for salvation was standing right there before their eyes. This was the gospel message that Jesus proclaimed. But his public preaching ministry was about to come to a close. You remember last week that Jesus issued an invitation. He was speaking to the Jewish crowd there and revealing to them that the son of David, Messiah, the Christ, he was much more than they could have ever expected. Not only was he the son of David, the son of man, but he was the son of God. And that only in this God-man would eternal life be found. But while the crowds were interested in what Jesus had to say, they were curious what he would say next. Their hearts weren't moved. There was no supernatural transformation. 
They walked into that place lost and they would leave that place just as lost as ever. And so before this Holy Tuesday is over, Jesus is gonna return back to the east. He's gonna go back to the Mount of Olives and there he's gonna enter into some, enter into a time of private teaching, instructing his disciples, preparing them for what comes next. But before he leaves, he's gonna issue one last word as the Jewish crowd stand around and they listened in. So I invite you to stand to your feet, please. The reverence to the reading of God's word. We return to the 12th chapter of Mark's gospel. We'll begin in the 38th verse. Mark 12, verse 38. This is the word of God. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and light greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we are a people that follow after our bellies, our physical eyes, always doing what seems right to us. But Father, what we desperately need is the mind of Christ. We need spiritual discernment. need the ability to see and to walk in your paths. So Father, we pray that you would in this place today do what only you can do. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe this word which you have, procla- you have proclaimed. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So word would have traveled fast that Jesus had come. You remember that before this holy week began that people were asking each other, what do you think? Do you think Jesus will even arrive for the feast? So word would have traveled that Jesus had arrived and that he had put even the greatest of Jewish teachers right in their place as they came to him with these trick questions, trying to trap him in his words. He handled all their questions with absolute, with absolute brilliance. He stepped through their traps with ease. There was no, no problem that they could bring to him that he couldn't solve. In fact, the scripture tells us that after this, no one dared to ask him any more questions, but Jesus wasn't done teaching. He was going to continue to proclaim the truth. And so while these crowds, they would have swelled, people would have been pushing and jostling, just trying to get closer to get a greater ear on that which Jesus taught us. He had another word. Now Luke tells us that what Jesus says here, he was teaching to the disciples, but he was doing it within the hearing of the crowds. Verse 38, and in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes. This is a warning. Beware. Blepo, or blepete is the word in Greek. It can mean to see, But what we'll see is Jesus using this very same phrase over and over again during the Olivet Discourse, that long stretch of teaching where Jesus instructs his disciples up on the Mount of Olives. We'll get to that, God willing, in the weeks to come. But Jesus would repeatedly use this same word, blepete, when speaking to them about the end of the age. In Mark 13, 9, he says this, blepete, be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. Be on guard, beware, blepete. Jesus used this very same word back in Mark 8. What we found there was that his disciples were worried about physical bread. They completely missed the point to what Jesus had done in miraculously feeding the great crowd. And so he said to them there in Mark 8, 15, watch out, beware, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What Jesus is doing here is he's issuing a warning. And it is critically important that you understand this because what he's about to do is condemn the scribes. He's about to speak in very harsh terms against the religious leaders and the lives that they live. And if we're not careful, we'll come to believe that all Jesus was doing here was taking a shot at these men that sought to destroy him. 
And then those of you that don't count yourself as leaders, those of you that don't hold some position of leadership within this church, you'll believe that Jesus has nothing to say to you here. But he is. He's calling out to all of us. He's calling out to the disciples there in the court of Gentiles, and he's calling out to his disciples today, beware, watch out, be on guard. Beware of the scribes. You see, this isn't just a general warning. Jesus is pointing to these men. The scribes were surely still there in the court. No, they weren't going to speak up and ask Jesus any more questions, but they were still there calculating their next move. And so Jesus points to these men, again, not a generic warning, watch out for these guys. Watch out for the scribes. Now Paul uses similar language in his letter to the Philippians. There he's telling people to watch out for the Judaizers. These are those men that tell the Gentiles if they wish to become Christian, they must first undergo Jewish circumcision. And so Paul says this in Philippians 3.2, Blapete, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Jesus, just like Paul, he's calling men to be careful, to watch out, to take care how much influence you allow these men to have over your life. Take care and watch out who you follow after. Take care and watch out how far and how long you're willing to travel down the path that these men are headed. So now Jesus has already spoken directly to these men. It would have been highly inappropriate for him to be in casting warning, warnings against these men had he not gone to them with their sin. And we've seen this all throughout the gospel. He had said that they were men that knew neither the scripture nor the power of God. He had said that they were men that willingly replaced the word of God with their own traditions. Jesus had confronted these men at every turn. He had called them to repent, and yet they would not. They were so hardened in their ways. And so now he's warning the people. Matter of fact, I'd ask you to go ahead and turn to Matthew's parallel. It's Matthew chapter 23 is a parallel to this morning's account. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. And what you're going to find is, is that this warning that Jesus issues, it either comes right before or in the middle of a series of seven woes that Jesus issues. What you'll find there in Matthew 23 is over and over, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He then goes on to deliver the direct charge. He tells them the evil that they have committed. And he begins it with, woe to you. Woe is an exclamation of sorrow or sadness or grief. It's a lament. Yes, Jesus is driven by righteous anger. Jesus is furious about what these men had done. But at the same time, he's heartbroken. He's lamenting. He's sorrowful because he knows where these men are headed. He knows that they are not right with God. And he knows what they will face at the end of this life. That's why we will see Jesus a bit later on, standing on the mountain, looking over Jerusalem. Even the town filled with these self-righteous hypocrites, these men that seek to destroy him, we will see Jesus standing, looking over Jerusalem and weeping for the destruction that's coming. Jesus is sorrowful and heartbroken as he delivers this somber, straightforward, yet loving condemnation. He's calling these men out. Woe to you. Now there's three woes in particular to which I'd like to draw your attention this morning. We're gonna work through these. They're not gonna be in direct order. I call you first to verse 16 there. Matthew 23, 16. I believe it's important that we see these woes because I think they give us some insight into why Jesus would dedicate this portion of his final public teaching to warning us. So verse 16, he says, woe to you, blind guides. These men are blind guides. Guides are men that are charged with leading other people somewhere. A blind guide is absolutely worthless. But worse than that, they're gonna lead people in some really unhealthy places. A bit earlier in Matthew 15, Jesus has said that when the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. That's the driver behind this warning. Jesus had already confronted these men in their sins. He's already given them the opportunity to repent. If at any point they would have laid down their arms and submitted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
If at any point they had let go of their power and their position and their prestige, if at any point they had stopped trying to earn entrance into the kingdom of God based on their own righteousness, Jesus would have gladly received them. But they would not. They were hardened, and they would continue down this path. And so now he turns his attention to the disciples, to us today, and he says, beware. Do not follow after these men. They don't know where they're going because they're spiritually blind, but you don't want to go where they're leading. Beware. Watch out. Look up a bit on your page to verse 13. Matthew 23, 13. Jesus says this. What are you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites? For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter it yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. These blind guides leading other blind people into a pit because they sought to earn salvation through their own self-righteousness because they trusted in their own ordinances rather than the promises of God, and because they taught other men to do the same, they effectively shut the door to heaven in their face. They would never enter into the kingdom of God because they would not receive the promises of God. They would not receive the grace and mercy, forgiveness of God because they tried to earn their own way, because they tried to build their own kingdoms. And to make matters even worse, they believed that they were justified. They believed that they were the righteous men. They believed that Jesus And those that preached the true gospel of Jesus Christ, those that followed after the Lord, they believed that they were the devils. They believed that they were the evil ones, and they themselves were justified. Now go down just a bit more. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. Now a proselyte is a converted follower. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Church, you hear what Jesus is saying. These men, there's no links they won't go to to earn just one single follower, one single convert. They will cross the open seas. They will march through the desert just to gain one more convert. And people would stand back and say, wow, what a man. What a child of God. Look at all he's willing to give up. Look at all he's willing to sacrifice. Look at the links that this man will go to to win just one more convert, one more follower. And in the end, because they know neither the power of God nor the truth of his scriptures, they're leading these men to hell. They're making them twice as much children of hell as they themselves because of the hypocrisy that's in their hearts, because of the false teaching that they proclaim, because they reject the true gospel. Dear friends, you wonder why I speak so harshly against sin, specifically sin in the lives of leaders, in the lives of those that would call themselves pastors, it is this. In the name of religion, in the name of righteousness, there is no links to which men will not go to cause others to follow them. These blind, hypocritical, false prophets leading men into pits, leading men straight to the pit of hell. Of course, each man's gonna have to answer for his own life. No man falls into the pit because of the sins of another. We must each deal with our own sin, bringing it to the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet, How neglectful would we be to not call out to each other? Look out. Beware. Take care. Don't follow after men like this. And frankly, that's what keeps me up at night. It's not that I've been too harsh with regards to sin. It's that I've been too lax. I haven't followed after the pattern of Jesus Christ and calling out the sin of religious leaders. And you'll notice I said leaders there. Dear friends, you must know that a man is not a hypocrite that struggles with sin. A man is not a hypocrite that comes into this place and desperately seeks to worship God with the weight of his sin. A man who hates his sin, knows his sin, confesses his sin, yes, struggles with his sin. That man's not a hypocrite. He's called a believer. He's called a blood-bought saint. 
He's called a child of the living God. Jesus receives those men with open arms. He lovingly receives those men. We stand here and we sing, his mercy is more. This week during one of my quiet times, I was struggling. I was struggling with peace. I was struggling with assurance. I was, I was just struggling. And God kept drawing my mind back to promises in Scripture. Because the way I found myself praying is I would, I would lay on my face before God and I knew that he loved me. And I knew intellectually that I had been forgiven. And I knew that eternal life was mine. But in the back of my mind, I kept having these doubts. But surely he must still be angry with me. Surely he must still be annoyed. Surely there must be some frustration on the part of God. And he kept reminding me that in Jesus Christ, it's as if you never sinned. It's as if you yourself upheld the fullness of the law. You are my son. I delight in you. I delight to bless you. I'm holy for you. Dear friends, you must understand, for the sinner that comes to Jesus Christ, confessing his sin, he is humble, he is meek, and he is gentle. But for the hypocrites, those that claim they have no sin, even worse, for those that would lead others in the name of God, claiming to have no sin, he pulls no punches. He confronts them, and he calls others to watch out because there's simply too much at stake. There's too much to be lost by these men following after these blind guides. And that's what concerns me. The American church doesn't always follow after this. I don't know how good a job we do at dealing with sin like this. But as a pastor, as an under-shepherd, as one that's following after Jesus Christ, I've got to ask myself, have we been negligent in this regard? Have we done a good enough job in calling men to watch out? Now, my stance has always been, primarily, my stance has been, look, I'll just preach the straightforward gospel of Jesus Christ. I will just show, week after week, I will bring before my people the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God seen in the face of his son, and then they will know the real thing. They will spot a counterfeit. They will spot that which is fake. They will have the spiritual discernment under the power of the Holy Spirit. They will recognize when wolves come into this place in sheep's clothing. And yes, that's absolutely true. That's the primary way in which a pastor protects his people. The day in, day out, week in, week out, years at a time, a steady diet of sound doctrine a steady diet of deep and truth out of God's word. But if I'm going to follow after the pattern of Jesus Christ, an under-shepherd to the high shepherd, I'm going to do what he does in this area. I'm going to help you as my people, as we're going to help each other as the people of God to steer clear of these people, to recognize wolves in sheep's clothing, that I must be willing to do what Jesus does, and that means name names. I don't speak generically about wolves. I point to wolves and I say, watch out. Beware. Look out for those men to chase those wolves away and then to help you deal with the wounds whenever they're left. Recognizing that when we do this, many people will view us as the bad guys. We will seem harsh. We will seem evil. We will seem unnecessarily combative. And that's part of biblical leadership. It's so loving your people that you're willing to be the bad guy. You're willing to lose their following. You're willing to have them no longer call, the, call you pastor. Dear friends, you must understand that the shepherd gets hurt so the sheep don't have to. The shepherd takes the arrows so the sheep don't have to. And part of protecting the people that are entrusted to you is being willing to call out sin and deal with it. And you have to understand I'm not just talking about pastors. I will speak much today in the first person because I know how much I struggle in this area. But you must understand that this goes for all leaders not just official leaders within the church, yes, those of you that lead Bible studies, those of you that lead mis uh, ministries, 
Those of you that have been entrusted with some care of some portion of God's people within this faith family. But those of you that are fathers, those of you that are husbands, those of you that have been called to care, to lead for anyone in any realm of this spiritual life. Dear friends, you must watch out. You must be willing to lay down your life for the sake of those that follow after you. You must be willing to take those arrows. You must be willing to see, be seen as the bad guy. You must be willing to call out sin. You must take great care who you follow after yourself. You must watch your own witness to make sure that you yourself aren't falling into this trap of these hypocrites. But then in the end, you must be willing to speak the truth. And the truth hurts. The truth divides. The truth will lose you friends. So Jesus has already lovingly confronted these men. Again, he doesn't take joy in the woes that he speaks over them, but they would not repent. They had chosen their path. And so now he turns to those that are there in the crowd, to his disciples in the hearing of the crowd, and he tells them, you must watch out. Because these men, they're going to retain the title of scribe long after I'm gone. And because of their position within the religious establishment, there's going to be some innate sense of trust and honor and respect that's given to them. So he says, beware of the scribes. Now you know who the scribes are by now. These are those men that have devoted their lives to the law of God, handwriting the law of God. We thank God that he used these men like this. In addition to this, these were men that taught the law of God to others. If there ever should have been men that knew how to walk in a way that pleased God, it would have been the scribes, and yet they had lost their way. It's a reminder that knowledge of the word of God has, does not automatically equal personal holiness. That having a head filled with Bible verses does not guarantee that it ever moves from your head to your heart. That it transfers the way, transforms the way that you walk. That in the words of John MacArthur, that we can be so filled with a mountain of God's word just enough to be inoculated to the true gospel. Just enough that we're immune to conversion. So we've got to take great care that we're just not a people that compiles for ourselves just great, great mountains of God's wisdom and never applies it to our own life, never sits under the weight of that. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Now these aren't really robes the way that we think of them today. There would have been some type of outer garment that Jesus and his disciples wore. We see evidence of this in Mark 5 as Jesus is walking, walking through the courts and there was a, uh, walking through the streets and there was a woman there with a bleeding problem and she reaches out her hand and touches just the hem of his garment and she is healed. And that would have been a tunic is a more appropriate word for that. So most surely what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the robe is the prayer shawl that Jewish men would have worn. The word for it is the talith. Now, the talith would have been oftentimes very simple, but these men, they wore very ornate, very expensive talith. And off the edge of these prayer shawls would have been tassels. They're called zitzits. And they would have had these long flowing tassels and these big, long prayer robes to make clear to people that not only were they religious men, but they're devoted men of prayer. They're devout, important, dedicated men of God. You'll continue to see this in Israel today. Now, obviously, the issue isn't just with men who wore robes. It isn't even with men that wore long robes. The issue is with the purpose behind the robe. The issue is what drove them to wear these robes. These guys were putting on a front. This was a religious mask. This was a washing of the outside of the cup while leaving the inside filthy. They wanted to make clear to you that you knew how holy they were while never really sitting under the weight of God's law themselves, while never living, really allowing the law to transform their hearts, while continuing to hold on to their sin and their selfishness and their pride. They wore these as a mask, as a badge of honor, as a way to make clear to you just how high and lofty they were. Perhaps today we see this playing out with men that post Bible verses or religious memes all the time, constantly trying to put out this front so that you'll believe that they're filled with the grace of God, that they themselves are followers of Jesus Christ, making clear that you know just how religious and just how holy and just how righteous they are while living lives of absolute sin, never sitting under the weight of the gospel, 
never allowing that gospel to transform their lives, holding on and hiding behind these masks while they cherish their own precious little sins. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. These men love to be greeted. There's nothing wrong with loving a warm hello. I love to be said, to be told hello. One of my favorite things back when I still went to Walmart, I don't go to Walmart anymore because I'll steal your truck, but back when I used to go to Walmart, I used to love walking down the aisle and what you would find there is I'd, I'd, I'd bump into a family from this church or even better than that, I'd bump into one of the children that played upward basketball here and they would recognize me and they would call me by my name. I love that. It genuinely made my day. I love to be greeted by these kids. But that's not what these men looked for. They sought to be admired. They sought to be put up on a pedestal. It says that Matthew's gospel says they like to be greeted in the marketplace and they like being called rabbi by others. It was all about the title. It was all about being seen as a man that had all the answers, a man that was holy and righteous, a man that they could look for to tell them what God's law commanded. See, I love to be greeted by children because it lets me know that they view me as their peer. They view me as somebody that's relatable. They know that I'm going to get down and I'm going to listen to what they actually have to say. I'm going to look them in the eye. I'm going to speak the truth back to them. They didn't want anybody to view them as peers. They wanted to be higher than everyone else. They wanted to be seen as untouchable. They wanted to be called rabbi or leader or pastor. They were in it all for the titles. Now, there's two scenes in Jerusalem that I told you have, have truly broken my heart. They continue to haunt me today. One of those is the Wailing Wall, that western portion of the Temple Mount, the only portion you can really get up close to. As you go there and you see Jewish men in their place and Jewish women in their place just pressing their faces into this wall and just wailing, sobbing, crying out to God and then writing prayers on little scraps of paper and shoving them in the cracks of the stone as if God himself were somehow trapped within that place, completely missing the fact that in Jesus Christ, God will be with them wherever they go. They don't turn to him. They don't trust in him. Even sadder than this was the Christians that followed right along with that practice. But in addition to this, and I've told you this story many times, I still get a pit in my stomach when I think about it. You'd be standing there in the open-air markets of the old city, and all of a sudden you would hear this noise, just just thump, thump, thump like a giant with a peg leg coming down the street and you didn't know what it was and you would hear these people saying watch out move out of the way and you turn around and look and you would see this entourage coming with some big wig in the middle demanding that you move out of the way in a part of the world where people don't move out of the way people don't get in lines over there they don't wait their turn it's just you just got to push you just got to pry you just got to work your way to the front but they expect you to get out of the way because there's this religious big wig there there's this holy man of God that's coming down the street. And as they beat their canes on the ground, they're making clear, you're a nobody. You need to get out of the way for this man who is somebody. That's where these men are. But the scene in America, of course, is much more subtle. It's not nearly this obvious. In our context, it's not demanding honor. It's, it's through smiles and through, through feigns of concern. You see, people don't openly demand respect. They manipulate you into giving it to them. They try to win you. They try to woo you. They try to lure you in, driven by the same desire, the desire to be recognized as prophet or rabbi or teacher or priest or pastor perhaps. They'll do whatever they got to do to accomplish that, to secure that title for themselves, to hold on to that title and make sure that you respect them in that position. Matthew's gospel again goes on like this, Matthew 23, 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Nothing's ever genuine. Nothing is ever done in secret devotion to God. It's always out there for the rest of the world to see, for the rest of the world to pat them on the back and to call them the good people, the righteous people, the holy people. It's always about storing up some kind of goodwill, religious capital with other people. It's always about building their brand. It's always about making sure that people recognize who is who, working and wrestling to climb this invisible ladder. And then once they've attained their place, they're gonna do whatever they've gotta to do to hold on. 
But we're the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Verse 39, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Now the best seats in the synagogue, they would have been the benches all the way at the front. Now there would have been one seat within the synagogue, a stone seat where the primary teacher, the authoritative teacher would sit as he delivered the law to the people there, as he delivered the teaching for the day. That's called the Moses seat. Again, in Matthew's parallel, Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees, they love to sit in the seat of Moses. But then behind this, there would have been a bench back against the wall, right where the scrolls are. And this would have been a place that faces the rest of the congregation. And the important people sat there so that you can see me. You can know how important I am. You can know what my position is. I'll be honest with you, when I was preparing this sermon, I got to thinking about what happens when we take the Lord's Supper. I don't know if I need to be convicted about this or not, but you know, we have this one little bitty pew here that I sit on, and whenever we take the Lord's Supper, in order to get out of the way and make sure people can get to the table, we move that pew over there. Well, I'm used to sitting in that pew. That's my pew. And so I go, and I sit over here against the wall, and I'm oriented different than you guys are whenever you worship. Do I do that so that you'll know I'm the pastor? I don't know, because I don't know my own heart. Your heart is deceptive, exceedingly wicked, I can't guarantee you that I don't sit over there so that everybody that walks in this place knows, well, look at that guy. He's standing different than everybody else. He must be somebody important. That's what these men do. They position themselves with making sure that everybody knows who's who. Then at the feasts, at the festivals, they make sure that everybody knows who's who, jockeying for the right place to be closest to the host, to make sure that they're closest to the host and everybody knows I'm the important person, the most important person here. And church, you've seen this. You've seen this as men strut in, even to this very sanctuary, as men strut into this place. They strut into meeting places or to fellowships or to places of worship, and they make it all about them. The loudest person in the room, always looking for somebody to call their name, always striving for attention, always working to build their brand, presumptuously assuming that all you people gather today so that you could wait for him, that you could wait for his entrance, so that you could all bow at his feet. And aren't you blessed that he has made an appearance here? That's the way these men worked. Always striving for the best seats. Look, there's nothing inherently wrong with sitting on the front row. I wish more of you would sit on the front row. But to do it because you want to be honored? To do it because you wish people would respect you more? Because you want to show people just how holy, just how close you are to the word of God? That's what these men were doing. They completely missed the whole point of gathering together. The reason why men gather together in the synagogues, the same reason men gather together in this sanctuary, is to come humbly. Listen, you come with confidence under the blood of Jesus Christ. You come with great confidence that God will not destroy you in his presence, that he will receive your worship, that he will forgive your sins. But at the same time, you come in here with your head held low, meek and mild, knowing this place is not about you. It's about worship of the living God. These men completely missed this. Instead, they come strolling in, Shaking hands, kissing babies, distracting men from their worship, from their prayers, from the honor that they should give to God. Careless about the fact that they're completely trampling that which is meant to be holy. They're so absorbed with themselves and building a name for themselves. They're completely oblivious to the fact that they're offending the living God. Completely oblivious to the fact that they're distracting from that which you came in here to do. You didn't gather just for a political event. And then they walk away from this place and they... They grade a gathering, not based on how God was honored, but based on how it made them feel. Based on how much honor and respect they got during that gathering. Now, sometimes as an act of love, God will allow these men to be embarrassed. God will use other men to put them in their place. Jesus spoke about this. He was at a, he was at a wedding feast, and he saw these kind of shenanigans going on, and so he spoke to them in parable. Luke 14, 8 through 11. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, 
lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And when he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sat at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now this humbling does not always come immediately. And because of the nature of this particular sin, because men that are bent like this, these hypocrites, they're able to woo you in. They're able to hide behind this disguise. They're able to convince you that they are righteous men of God. You won't always recognize this. Now oftentimes, yes, men will use fear and coercion, just outright power in order to manipulate you, to move you, to demand respect and honor from you. But more often than not, it's gonna be a warm handshake, a big bear hug, and a smile. These men will be humbled in the end. But for now, Jesus is saying, you must watch out and you must watch your own heart lest you become these men. You recognize we don't stand in this place today to point fingers at others. We come in this place today to be examined by the word of God. Say, is this me? Have I made this gathering place all about me? Have I made the worship of God all about the worship of me? We examine our hearts and we stand with fear and trembling. But yes, we watch who we follow after. We watch who we call leader. We watch who we put our name behind. We watch who we support in their ministries. We watch out, we beware. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, verse 39, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts and who devour widows' houses. Now over and over again in scripture, God speaks very clearly to the fact that we're to care for those that are most vulnerable. This wasn't common in the ancient Near East. Many communities there, if you were unable to provide for yourself, to fend for yourself, then you were just out of luck. You were just gonna be left behind. But God made clear with his people that would not be the case. Exodus 22, he says, you shall not mistreat the widow or the fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. More than not merely mistreating the widows and the fatherless, God's people to go above and beyond. To love your neighbor as you love yourself, this is an active, a pursuing, an aggressive kind of love. Meeting the needs of those that have need just as if you were meeting them for yourselves. This is why when God's people, whenever they were harvesting their fields, they were to leave something around the edge so that the poor could glean from it. They were to give alms to the needy. They were to look out for, they were to care for, they were to fend for, they were to provide for the widows that were among them. And this truth, it carried on into the church age. We saw the same spirit In the book of Acts, Acts chapter six, we see that a dispute broke out between the Hellenists and the Hebrews about the care of their widows. And as a result of this dispute, disunity began to break out within the church. And so, recognizing that this need needed to be met, the apostles, they recognized and they set aside some prototypes to our deacons, the forerunners to our deacons, seven men. They prayed over them, they laid hands on them, they consecrated them to meet these needs. But these scribes, far from caring for these widows, they were praying on them. Now, we don't know what it means to say that they devoured their houses. Does this mean that they convinced them to sign over title deed to their house? Does it mean that they were somehow abusing in egregious ways their hospitality? Does it mean that they were taking money from them in exchange for religious services? Whatever it is, it wasn't good. These religious men, again, men that are afforded innate and inherent respect and honor and trust, they're abusing these women that have been entrusted to them. And while the motives aren't always financial, many times they are. You know those devils on TV. 
Those men that are constantly promising healing and health and wealth, if you'll just send in your money. I used to see this all the time in my former life as a banker, but it was always too late when we recognize it. These, these men that would come to these women and they would convince them through the television, if you'll just send in your money, I will send you all the blessings of God. They would send money that they didn't have. They go broke while this man buys a jet or a second home. He has no care for the gospel, even less care for these women. But just as with these other, other evils, it's not always that straightforward. Oftentimes it has nothing to do with finances. It's much more nuanced. It's much more sneaky. It's much harder to pin down. But these men, these men in the name of religion, they will come to older women. They will come to widows and they will woo them. They will win their trust with a warm smile and a gentle tone. They will convince them that they have their best needs in heart. They will convince them that they are looking out for them. They will convince them that they are the only ones that can look out for them. And then what you do is you build a boogeyman or a straw man. That's the way you manipulate people. You convince them to be afraid. You convince them that there's someone or something out there that only you can protect them from. And then you alienate them from those that would speak the truth to them. You alienate them from the body of Christ. You alienate them from anybody that would call them out on their sin and on their hypocrisy. And then you make yourself sympathetic so that when the calling out comes, when the sin is identified, immediately those women that you're taking advantage of, they come running to your aid. You use them as nothing other than human shields. You don't care for them. You don't love them. They're nothing but a means to fill some unholy need in your life. That's who these men were. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. I've often struggled with this, long prayers. Is Jesus saying that long prayers are automatically uh, hypocritical? Is he saying that it's dishonoring to God to have these long prayers? We gather together for midweek on Wednesdays. Oftentimes the public portion of that prayer can last 30 minutes. Is that dishonoring to God? And we do find that Jesus' longest prayers were reserved for his time alone with the Father, while his public prayers were shorter and more condensed and more to the point. But we do see some long pastoral prayers in other places from men like Ezra and Peter. But I think it has to do with that word pretense there, the purpose behind the prayer. Jesus seemed to speak to the heart of this back in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not, must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. That's the problem. The purpose to their prayers is to be seen by others. They're not praying to God. They're praying to themselves. They're not crying out to God. They're crying out for attention. They're using those big, robust, long-winded prayers so that you'll look and go, man, look how close that man is to God. Look at the conversations he gets to have with God. Look at all the theology he knows. Look at all he knows about God. Surely that man is a friend of God. They're hypocritical in the way that they pray. So you've got the picture now. This is the man that Jesus is warning us against. This is the man he's warning us against becoming these men are absolute hypocrites. There's nothing genuine about anything they do. They're lovers of self. They're always calculating how to capture the biggest audience, how to build their brand, how to make sure they rise to positions of power and never have to let loose. Now Jesus, again, he's already confronted them directly, but they've chosen their path. So hardened in their heart, they will not turn away. And so now he looks to his disciples and he looks to us and he says, watch out, beware. Do not follow after these men. Do not allow these men to influence you. Do not support these men's ministries. Do not allow yourself to become like these that you follow after. Watch out, beware, be on guard. But how? How do we do this? How do we be on guard? How do we know who to watch out after? I mean, people don't walk around wearing black hats letting you know they're the bad guy. Most of the time, they don't know they're the bad guy. Again, I ask, how do I know I'm not the bad guy? 
How do you know you're not the bad guy? I believe it comes back to the text that David read at the beginning of our time. You will know them by their fruit. You watch. You watch. Certainly you listen to their words. Men must speak the truth. They must preach the truth. And that was really the beginning of these men's problem. It was their theology was faulty. You see, when you recognize just how gigantic this God is that you worship, you get real small real quick and there's not a lot of room for hypocrisy. There's not a lot of room for building your brand. But when you get that flipped and you're real big and God's a little teeny tiny, it's easy to walk in this way. And certainly we need to make certain before we put men forward as leaders, before you accept a position of leadership, that you meet the biblical requirements of leadership. But then you look at the fruit. What do they produce? Do they live lives that look like Christ? Do you live lives that look like Christ? Are they daily dying to themselves and taking up their cross and following after Jesus? Do they walk in clear dependence upon the Spirit? Dear friends, here's my question to you if you count yourself as a leader. Here's my question about the leaders that you follow. Here's my question about myself. Could I live this very same life if God was not there? Could I live this very same life that I live in the flesh with no working of the Holy Spirit whatsoever? Or do I live in complete dependence upon him? Is there evidence? Is there fruit that the Holy Spirit indwells me and is working through me? And what becomes of those that follow after them? What becomes of those that follow after you? Are they producing just little minions that run around after them? Are they, are they producing men that are more dedicated to them than they are to Jesus Christ? Or are they pushing men in the deep waters? Are they pushing men deeper into their relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are they just building little followers of themselves? Yes, we want to be like Paul where we say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But are they imitating Christ? Are they saying the hard truths? Are they walking in the way that Christ walked? And to those that find themselves as disciples under these men, as those that find themselves as disciples under you, those that follow you, do you find them in a deeper communion with Jesus Christ in the church that he builds, or do you find them further on the fringes? Do you find men that follow after these men, these hypocrites, these scribes, these pastors, do you find that they're actually driven further away from the body of Christ rather than closer in? These are the questions that you must ask. Do you find these men leading people into deep and meaningful communion and fellowship and service and daily dying to self for the name of Jesus Christ and for the love of his bride. You see, church, in the ancient Near East, it was just a given based on positions, based on the weight of an office. Men could use sheer power to demand respect, to demand honor, to demand that you obey and follow them. There was a clear-cut hierarchy, a strata. That was the purpose behind the seating arrangements at dinner. So everybody knew who was who. The religious establishment, they possessed... They possessed power throughout all of Jewish life. It was just a given. So people thought nothing about men being the loudest and the most boisterous. That's why we see the disciples arguing amongst themselves about which of them was greatest in the kingdom of God. But in 21st century America, it's totally different. People don't automatically give honor and respect to religious men. Just because man wears a title of pastor or elder or deacon, they're not immediately offered respect out in the world. They're not automatically trusted. And so what men today do is they've got to rely on pragmatism. Rather than straight up bullying, rather than demanding honor and respect, they've got to go the way of the world. They've got to learn to speak like the world. They've got to play the games of the world in order to manipulate people into honoring them like this. It's not so much exercising outward force, although you will certainly see this, but more often than not, these men that seek to hold on to their reputation, to acquire a name and not lose it no matter what the cost, it's going to be manifest by them playing the room you see the word hypocrite, it means a play actor. It's one that's hiding behind a mask. 
And what you've got to understand is that today's mask is not going to look like the mask of the first century. It's not even going to look like the mask of the 20th century. The masks are always changing with the culture. The masks are always changing with the room. But the evil desires that lie behind them, they don't change. We just play the games. We change the games that we play in order to influence the crowd and make sure that we have positions of power. Now the majority or vast majority of these religious leaders today, what you'll find is they're playing the victim. They want you to sympathize with them. There was a big name, Christian pastor recently. There was no outward evidence, no outward signs that there was any problem whatsoever. This man handled the scriptures well. He was, his apologetics were incredible. His exposition was just exquisite. His ability to preach, his ability to lead men to God. Just a big, robust, meaningful uh, ministry. Then when this man died, all these accusations came out. And people were like, no way, not this guy. You're just trying to sully his reputation now that the man's not here to defend himself anymore. And sure enough, as they dug deeper, what they found was this man used sympathy to manipulate women. You don't know the weight of this ministry that I carry. You don't know the weight of the souls that I seek to lead. You don't know how tired I am. You don't know how needy I am. He manipulated women in order to use them as objects. He manipulated women in order to fulfill his disgusting needs. This is the tool, this is the mask of today, it's sympathy. Becoming the victim. In addition to that, they use the mask of just being nice. You know that's the 11th commandment now, right? Thou shalt be nice. It's the only commandment you can't break. You're allowed to break all the others, but buddy, you better be nice. Because people only follow after nice people. You'll lose your audience if you're not nice. You'll lose your followers if you're not nice. And so these nice men, they lead other nice men straight to the pit of hell. Look, I have nothing against being nice. I married a nice woman, I have three nice little girls. I could stand to be a little more nice myself. But if you're following a man just because he's nice, God help you. If you're following a man just because you're sympathetic towards him, God help you. You've got to watch these men. You've got to listen. You've got to hear what they actually say. And no, I'm not talking about the tone. I'm talking about the words that they say. They say the hard truths of Jesus Christ. They're willing to say the hard thing, even if that means you're no longer going to follow them. Even if that means you're no longer going to call them pastor and friend. Are they willing to say the hard truth no matter the cost? They're willing to take unpopular stands on hard biblical truths. Even while the world condemns them. Even while the world calls them harsh. The Apostle John in his letter, first letter to the church, he says that you must judge the spirits. Anyone that does not say that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is not to be followed. But saying Jesus Christ is Lord, acknowledging Jesus Christ is Lord, it's more than just uttering some words, it's living it out. And when Jesus Christ is Lord, you don't worry about your own reputation. You don't worry about offending others. You don't worry about building a brand. You don't worry about the size of a congregation. You do what needs to be done. So dear friends, I ask you again, are you following men just because they're nice? Now, I've took great comfort this week from the fact that we're not alone in this struggle. This is not a new struggle to the 21st century church. I was reading through the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones's exposition of Psalm uh, 10, verse three. And uh, what I find there is that the church in London, 60 years ago, they struggled with this very same thing. And here's what he says. Christian people are mistakenly mistaking natural qualities, niceness, and cultural veneer of politeness for true Christian grace. It seems we are no longer capable of differentiating between the two. How often today is affability mistaken for saintliness? 
What a great man he is, they say. What they really mean is this. He never criticizes, and he agrees with everybody and everything. I know of nothing more dangerous than that. These so-called gracious men are, of course, altogether nicer than John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. I do not hesitate to go further. They are very much nicer than the Lord Jesus Christ himself who denounced the Pharisees. Affability is not saintliness. A mere intellectual, moral flabbiness is not synonymous with graciousness or with the possession of grace. Again, I say, church, if you follow men because they are nice and that's the sole basis, God help you. If you believe men will follow you merely because you're nice, God help you. If you're avoiding saying the hard truths because you're afraid men will no longer find you nice, God help you. Nice cannot be our goal. Holiness, honoring the king of the universe, that must be our goal. And then with regards to sin, how do we deal with sin? How do you deal with sin? How do those you follow deal with sin? Do you confront your brother as a bully? Do you only confront your brother whenever they, their sin has carried over into your life? Do you only confront, confront your brother whenever their sin seeks to do harm to your little kingdom? Or you have so much zeal for the name of Christ, so much zeal for the church that he's building, that you will confront sin whenever necessary? Do you confront them with a the desire for repentance and reconciliation? Do you say the hard thing with a deep desire that they would turn from their sin and be reconciled, be reunited with the body that they have left? Again, I say, certain people will use abusive terms. They will bully. They will slander. They will use their position to beat you with a club. But more often than not, they will just avoid ever dealing with sin. They'll avoid saying anything that would ever challenge you. They would avoid saying anything that would ever alienate you and cause you to not follow them. Again, in this day of pragmatism, what they'll do is they'll offer you false unity, false grace, false gospel in the name of empty peace. Empty peace because there's no outward conflict. Empty peace because I agree with whatever you say. Empty peace because we never truly deal with sin. So you watch. This man that you call leader, this man that you call pastor, these people that you seek to lead as you yourself are a leader, are you standing out there crying, peace, peace, where there is no peace? While the Babylonians circle, while the swords are sure to come, do you continue to whisper to them, everything's gonna be okay? See what these men were happy to do. They were happy to have people head straight to the pits of hell as long as they followed them along the way. Men are happy to talk about sin generally, but they don't love you enough to look you in the eye and say, brother, this is sin, let's deal with it. They'll talk about sin generally. They'll issue up these half-hearted apologies, this mush-mouth, mealy-mouth kind of thing where they never really confess what they've done. They really never actually acknowledge that they have sinned. But in the end, they're never gonna stand before you and say, I've sinned against the living God. In dust and ashes, I repent today. By the name of God, I seek restoration with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask you to forgive me. They'll never do this because they love themselves way more than they'll ever love you. You're just a pawn. You're just a piece to be moved, a chip to be played. And dear friends, I tell you all this so that you can beware, so that you won't allow yourselves to be sucked in by this. And I understand how uncomfortable this sermon is. It's not fun to preach. It wasn't fun to write, I promise you that. It feels like we're calling people out. Even as I say these things, surely there's some of you that are sitting in your seats and you're thinking of names right now, even as I've not named names. But dear friends, if this was the last portion of Jesus' public teaching, if Jesus' last public preaching within the ear of the crowd was on this, what right do we have to gloss over it? There's too much at stake. There's too much weight to be had here. And again, in love, I must tell you that I am susceptible to every one of these things. I don't stand in this pulpit and point at others. I'm telling you, I struggle with every single one of these sins. Anyone that's ever sought to lead, anyone that's ever had a ministry, 
Anyone that's ever served in the church, you struggle in these ways. Who wants to be hated? Who doesn't want to be loved? Who doesn't want to be recognized? And eventually, if you serve long enough, you're going to come to a fork in the road. You're going to come to a crossroads where you've got to decide, do I stand for what is right by the word of God? Do I do this hard thing? Do I stand on the integrity of the gospel? Or do I retain my following? Knowing that people won't call me pastor anymore. Knowing that people will reject me as their friend. Knowing that my congregation will shrink. This isn't easy stuff. No man can stand before you and say as a leader, they don't struggle in every single one of these areas. The desire to be loved, it can be intoxicating. The desire to be needed. And what can happen is I can stand in this place and I can say, you know what? My people need me to preach the gospel. They need to show up on Sunday morning. They need this straightforward diet of the gospel. And I'm the one that God's called here. And so whatever, in, whatever um, means I must use to get to that end, that's what I'm going to do. I can convince you of that same thing, that you'll willingly look over my sin, that you won't confront me in my sin, that you'll allow me to run like a devil as long as I come in here and feed you, as long as I preach to you the word, as long as you convince yourself that I'm a decent guy. It's so easy to fall for this trap, don't you see? All leaders, again, not just pastors, husbands, fathers, Sunday school leaders. It's so easy to fall in this trap. And so I stand before you today, I plead with you. Fear God more than you love your leaders. Fear God more than you love your reputation. Fear God more than you love whatever you think we're building in this place. Because if it's not built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it's not built on hard biblical truth, it will not stand. So I'm pleading with you, love this church enough to do this hard thing. Call out your leaders. Confront your leaders. You know, as I was preparing to deliver this sermon, I I read a a note from a pastor called Mark Dever, and he had preached a sermon a while back called How to Fire Your Pastor. And one of the elders in his church said, dude, what are you doing giving a loaded gun to the enemy? And he said, dear brother, the day I think of my people as the enemy, we got a whole lot bigger problems. You are not my enemy. You will never be my enemy. But at the same time, if I'm going to hand you a loaded gun, I want to make sure you know how to aim it and who to shoot it at. And this may be one singular moment of clarity in my life. Who knows where I'll end up tomorrow? Who knows what darkness may ensnare me tomorrow? And so I'm telling you today, when that day comes, when you find signs of rabies in me, you put me down like a dog. You do not allow me to lead you into darkness. You do not allow me to lead you in the pit. You love this church enough. You love the name of Jesus Christ enough that you're willing to confront me in my sin. And don't ever allow yourself to think that your leaders can't fall into this trap. I'm not talking about baseless allegations. I'm not talking about gossip or slander. But when there's a clear pattern, look, if somebody comes to you and they accuse me or Pastor Kyle or one of your other leaders of something, your first response is very clear based on the biblical pattern. You ask them, what did they say when you went to them? You come to me first in private. That's the biblical mandate. You come to me. Look, this may be a misunderstanding. It may not be sin. It may be a misunderstanding. Or maybe I'm already aware of that sin. I've repented and I'm working through it through the proper channels. Or maybe I'm deceived and lost. You don't know if you don't come to me in this. I'm not looking to build a bunch of sharpshooters, right? I don't want a bunch of hall monitors, a bunch of one-bullet sheriffs running around trying to shoot everybody. I'm not looking for you to look over my shoulder. Look, I'm trying to keep a pretty short ledger of unconfessed sin. But guys, don't ever allow yourself to believe if somebody comes to you and they say, David, would you believe that Josh did this? Brother, never once believed, no, he would never do that. That's a lie from Satan. Dear friends, there's no ends to the sin that I would do. 
the grace of Jesus Christ are not in me. The evil that will boil up in my heart? Do not ever allow yourself to believe your leaders could not stumble like this. Your leaders could not sin like this. So you come to me and you confront me. You owe it to your church. You owe it to your church. You count yourself as a leader to stand before this mirror today and ask, is this me? That the words of Jesus Christ would cause you to tremble for they will receive greater condemnation. There's a greater judgment that comes upon leaders. There's greater punishment that comes upon leaders because of the weight of the damage that they can do. Dear friends, I'm telling you, when we will stick to this, when we will care a whole lot less about what people think of us, we'll care a whole lot less about what the world says about us, we'll care a whole lot less about the size of our following, and we'll just charge hard after the kingdom of God. We'll charge hard after a personal holiness, a, manulin, a manly, masculine, world-shaking holiness. You watch what Jesus Christ does in this church. You watch the way he transforms our relationships. You watch the way he elevates our worship. You watch the way he is glorified in every single thing that happens in this place. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we thank you for the leaders that you have given us. You said in your word that you call us together into a place like this, that you've gifted us with leaders, evangelists, preachers, teachers, that every single one of us, we come into this place with spiritual gifts, that we come into this place not to build a name or reputation, not to be given a microphone to sing a solo, not to be given a pulpit to give a speech, but that, Father, we come into this place to edify, to build up the body using these gifts that you have given us, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you've not called us to lone wolf Christianity. But, Father, we know at the same time just how deceptive our hearts can be. We know how easy it is to wander off the course. And so, Father, I pray that you would cause us each to examine our hearts that you would bring to us brothers and sisters that are willing to confront us and that you would give us a gentle and lowly spirit. Father, may we be people that receive confrontation well. May we receive those brothers and sisters that come to us having to swallow hard, sick at their stomach, wanting to vomit at the thought of having to come to us and confront us in our sin. May we receive them well. May we feel the weight of that confrontation. May we hear their words truthfully, even looking for just a grain of truth. Even if we believe ourselves to be being unrightfully, unrightfully conf uh, confronted in that moment. Father, maybe we be a people that receive it well. May we be a people that loves your name and your reputation and your holiness more than our own. And may we bring you honor and glory in the moments to come. Not just with the words that we sing, but with the meditations of our heart. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.